So we are slowly winding down. As you'll see tonight, we're going to get into the 80s and early 90s a little bit. But at the end of this uh, study tonight, I'm going to show you the importance of why we're looking at some of these components that have shaped our culture the way it has. Uh, it will be a five-minute video uh, from a very real conference. And um, this conference was back in July, right before 4th of July. And it really is going to talk about the topic I want to venture into tonight and then possibly get into, as we finish it up, uh, that subtopic uh, next Wednesday night. So I've been using this as kind of our model, uh, the making of the modern world. We haven't touched any of this over here regarding postmodern um, problems that we're experiencing. But what we, what we have been doing is we've been breaking down a little bit some of the key personalities of evangelicalism and why it developed the way that it developed. So tonight, what we're going to do is we are going to um, look at the 90s, and there are several individuals that I will um, highlight for us tonight because it's very instrumental. If, if you were a Christian back in the uh, late 70s and the early uh, 80s, you will know that everything became kind of apocalyptic in emphasis. And what I want to talk about tonight is how that happened and then how that kind of merged with this idea of Christian nationalism and this idea of uh, patriotism being connected to a particular uh, Christian worldview and the emphasis of trying to uh, legislate this particular view within our culture. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to start off with an individual uh, by name of James Robeson. He's a televangelist. And then we're going to move through Ronald Reagan. And right here, Hal Lindsey plays a very significant role in this emphasis in the late 70s and early 80s. We'll talk a little bit about Oliver North and then Pat Robinson and Rush Limbaugh. So all of these are more familiar names to us uh, because uh, many of them are still living. Uh, some have passed away and some have passed away um, not too, too long ago in the case of Rush Limbaugh. So what I want to do tonight is uh, talk a little bit about um, this idea of Christian nationalism, how it began. So if you look at your notes that I sent out uh, this past week, uh, you'll note that in 1980, August of 1980, uh, Christian leaders gathered in Dallas for a national meeting of the Religious Roundtable. Perhaps you've heard of that in the news, the Religious uh, Roundtable. What was interesting at this particular point in time is it became a political and patriotic rally as much as a religious rally. And so it is kind of the first wave of uh, the idea of merging the waving of the American flag and the shouting of hallelujahs and all this, which is built kind of on the idea that we're kind of like the new Israel as the, uh, as, uh, the United States, that we are the chosen people. The primary purpose of that gathering uh, was the concern for the nation's moral decline and its diminishing military power. So this particular gathering was masterminded by James Robeson. He brought together some of the people that we talked about last week, Jerry Falwell and Phyllis Shafley, but also Pat Robertson was uh, asked to be a part of this. So here is James Robeson. This is uh, not a most recent uh, picture. He's, he looks older than this uh, now, but he was born in 1943. He is still living. Um, I, have not, I did not check whether he still has a show on TV, but at one time he and his wife um, had a, uh, a regular show that they used as commentary along with guests 
to primarily bemoan the state of the nation and that type of thing. Well, that, this particular gathering kind of advanced something that I thought was very, very significant. And that's point number three here. Um, Robinson's goal was to convert his audience to politics, stating not voting is a sin against Almighty God. So now we're beginning to see Christianity and this idea of uh, political activism uh, merging together. So if I was in that position to ask Mr. Robinson, um, where does it say in the scriptures that not voting is a sin against God? There's no place because there's no voting in the Bible. There, it's an entirely different political system than was in place in uh, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So what's interesting is this advancement of control upon people. Remember that most of what goes on with these type of statements is to control the populace by fear, okay? So fear is the dominant thing that is used. And in this case here, uh, the reason our nation is going into the gutter is because you're not voting. Well, if you do decide to vote, you have to vote a particular way. And the way you have to vote is the Republican party. So, it became very, very close to this kind of pronouncement here. Political salvation can be found in the Republican Party. And the fear that was used at the time, if you'll think back and you'll remember, was fear of communism. That began with Reagan, primarily. Uh, feminism, the rise of the e e uh, Equal Rights Amendment, those type of things and homosexuality. Um, and so Robinson felt that the way to push back on these things was for God's people to come out to the polls and change America through their vote. Does that make sense to everybody? Vote Republican, a particular way. Yeah, you had to vote Republican. So with that in mind, uh, he was a very influential individual, even though when you read the daily news or listen to newscasts, he probably wasn't mentioned all that much. But since our concentration is not so much upon all the factors of politics, but how Christianity intersected with some of these things, this is an important individual that kind of came into the forefront during that period of time. Do you have any uh, comments or thoughts about that? Now, I will say this about James Robeson. He seems very logical, and he's not as wild-eyed and crazy like Kenneth Copeland type thing, you know. Um, and he's not, he doesn't seem to be the, the money grabber that Robert Tilton was when he had his, um, his show going on. And he didn't have the scandal of Jimmy Swagger. So, I mean, in that sense, I can understand why he caught the ear of uh, the evangelical church. But uh, nonetheless, he was through and through um, building upon what Dobson and others had laid down. And that is the only way to vote is Republican and uh, to not vote is a sin against God. Now we come to Ronald Reagan. Um, so Ronald Reagan uh, was the 40th president of the United States. He served two terms, 1981 to 1989. He's the only movie actor to ever become president, uh, but he had some uh, amazing oratory skills. Uh, he was an individual, whether he wrote all his speeches or not, he sure knew how to deliver them. Uh, he had uh, great communication abilities. Um, and he came to the forefront um, as a staunch conservative, but it didn't begin in his political career. Uh, you'll remember he was governor of uh, California for a while. 
It actually began when he was the president of the Screen Actors Guild, and he was involved in some controversies over the influences within the film industry. And he, um, he had some disputes with others over the issues of what he called communism in the film industry. And I don't have enough information to know exactly what he was referring to, but he was an individual that began to pick up on the coded language of the evangelicals. And he was not deeply religious. So you could draw a parallel in some ways to Donald Trump. Uh, Trump was uh, a reality star, um, not deeply religious, has his own baggage. Um, one of the criticisms against Reagan was that he was divorced and remarried and all that type of thing. Um, but what his primary idea was echoed Barry Goldwater that we talked about two weeks ago, that the only way you can have peace is through military strength. And so he was very, very big on that. But what is it that he, that he used as his icon? Well, Ronald Reagan was in a lot of films, but he used to like to wear cowboy hat. You remember uh, when he wasn't in a suit, he used to like to wear a cowboy hat. At the time, I didn't think much of it other than, you know, that's kind of his genre of some of the movies that he made. But as I look back on it now, he in many ways was channeling Teddy Roosevelt. And Roosevelt was this idea of this um, strong man, this individual that was, um, uh, as I put here, just had that perfect look of a strong masculine leader. And um, so what you have with Ronald Reagan too, uh, was kind of this uh, throwback that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks of trying to recapture strong masculinity and coupling that with his conservatism. And uh, he was an individual that uh, began to, a move forward, not only his fight against communism, but this idea of Christian nationalism. He understood that evangelicals um, could be won over by the type of values that he held to. So uh, he became uh, part of that evangelical structure, even though I don't think that he was evangelical by any means. But the other thing that he did that you see Donald Trump mimicking is kind of the nostalgia for a mythical American past, making America great again, that the way forward is by going back. And he had some of that uh, nostalgia about him as well. And people loved it um, um, because he was an individual that it was probably within our lifetime, probably the finest orator that um, in the presidency. I mean, I think, I think Obama came close to that, uh, but I mean, he really, he was able to win people over with his skills like that. Some thoughts there? So here he is, Ronald Reagan. Um, as you know, he was, uh, there was an attempted assassination upon his life. He was shot. He was in the hospital for a while, uh, that type of thing. Um, when I was doing the, the footwork for this particular study tonight, I, I thought he's been gone uh, for a long time, yeah. 2004. I, I, for some reason, it just didn't register that he had been gone that long. Yeah, so... Yeah, he, he owned a ranch as well. Yeah, so he, he that cowboy kind of, yeah. Well, I was in the Air Force when he was, partially when he was in president and he was in orbit and we were supposed to develop these weapons that could shoot down a nuclear weapon. They were, they were somewhat mythical, even though we, we did research on them, but we used to call him Ronald Reagan. 
Oh, <laughs> Ronald Reagan. He was one of the first ones that kind of promoted the Star Wars. Um, what did they call it? What yeah. was the name? Uh, yeah, it, it was, uh, it was um, Star Wars. Strategic. Um, it was Star Wars. It was something strategic. Yeah, I can't remember. But I can't remember exactly what it was. Yeah. So how how far did he advance that goal of being able to um, uh, develop weapons from space? I I don't remember exactly. We didn't really. Make, I mean, we did. They put a lot of money into it, but it was pretty basic work, and and the, some of it was developing these huge, powerful laser beams. Remember they had. Remember we'd watch it on TV. They show a laser, like big laser beam on Earth, shooting down satellites and shooting missiles down. Mm -hmm. It was it was very well done from a PR standpoint. Uh huh. Killer. Yeah. But you know, but basically a lot of that was 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 it looked it looked good in simulations, and I think it, it in part it scared the Russians. I think it <laughs> in part contributed to the fall, probably. But yeah. but on the other hand, it was re in reality it was pretty far away from reality at that time now whether whether today i'm not sure but um it was it was a, a lot of it was i call pr hype you know along with the with the actual research and development work is that more of a reality today bud do you think has that developed i don't think so I, I don't think we have the ability i don't think we i mean we have we have i think we have missile anti-missile missiles missiles that'll shoot down nuclear you know weapons missiles but i don't think we, we have a you know I remember they used to show a, a satellite in the in orbit with a big laser on it and it would it would shoot down it would shoot down the missiles you know as they were being launched and stuff i i don't i don't think that exists i mean i i'm quite sure it doesn't but i don't know maybe who knows now don't you think trump kind of tried to mimic that as well then wasn't he gonna create another branch of the military that's a separate command now space uh, command uh, so uh, but uh, yeah he, i mean he, but, but what he but trump did was nothing close to what reagan yeah what reagan did and, and the amount of money they put into that and, and the, the pr the advertising you know simulations that it was all pretty pretty sophisticated and pretty i mean i remember seeing it on the news all the time yeah yeah yeah. Very good. Well, let's keep going here. Okay. So what's interesting about Ronald Reagan is that he was the chosen uh, candidate by the evangelicals, even though Jimmy Carter, who only lasted for one term, really was an evangelical. So he was a Southern Baptist, uh, Sunday school teacher, he ran into some difficulties in his presidency that kind of put him behind the eight ball, unfortunately. But um, as far as a true Christian believing um, evangelical, Jimmy Carter was far ahead of Ronald Reagan. But the evangelicals um, chose to back Reagan. And you'll notice point number two here they bypassed the re-election of Jimmy Carter, who shared their faith, in favor of one who shared their rhetoric. And I think that's important to keep in mind as we see this developing, because since Reagan, uh, there's not been a Democrat that has won over the majority of the evangelical support since then. So what's interesting is, um, the National Association of Evangelicals advocated on behalf, remember we talked about this, uh, the development of the National Association of Evangelicals, they advocated on behalf of uh, Reagan. And one interesting thing that they did, and I, as I look back on it, I, uh, they played on the sympathies of the evangelicals by focusing on religious persecution against Christian evangelicals around the world. And it, I think that probably was a very strategic thing to do politically because it played on the hearts of Christians who 
hey, we all want religious liberty and freedoms and that type of thing. And uh, pe some people were, were carrying some heavy costs around the world for being Christian. But at the same time, what the way the political turn on that um, is connected is through Oliver North. Oliver North, if you'll remember, um, he was a, um, a Marine that was a convert to evangelicalism and became an American hero because of his love for God and love for country at the same time. Now, he had some baggage because he was selling uh, weapons to um, Iran in their conflicts um, and to subsidize the Contras down in Nicaragua. He, was, he had some hearings and so forth. Uh, he was eventually acquitted from the charges, that type of thing. But here's a, here's a look. Uh, you'll remember this was an image that was on TV quite often of Oliver North uh, uh, taking the oath as he testified before Congress. Uh, he is still living, um, born in 1943. Uh, what's interesting is what happened after all of this. So Oliver North became kind of like an American hero to evangelicals. And he began to take up a lot of these sounding points that we hear uh, even within uh, Christianity today, um, and especially uh, Christian nationalism. He was for anti-gun control. Uh, he was pro-life. He endorsed school prayer, strong defense. He was anti-gay. Well, what's interesting is after he left the public limelight, he became, just for over a year or so, the president of the National Rifle Association. And um, he, had some, he had some conflict with some other individual in the organization. He stepped down and then a lady took over as the president. Um, but here you see, here's what is beginning to meld together. These are the issues that are associated with uh, Christian nationalism, anti-gun control, pro-life. And of course, this is a major one since the uh, turn back of Roe v. Wade. Um, and in you know, school prayer, I don't, I don't hear as much of that anymore, but strong defense. Uh, I think there's stirrings against the gay community since the turn back of Roe v. Wade. Um, uh, Clarence Thomas has recently said that they should relook at the, uh, the uh, Marriage Equality Act. Um, so right now there's something before the House, I think. I don't think it's before the Senate, but um, and that's the, the Respect Marriage Act. So did it pass in the House? Okay. It passed the House. It passed in the House, but the Senate yeah. is to come. Yeah. 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 So anyways, it's going to be interesting to see what happens uh, with that. Um, but all of this started to gain momentum back in the 80s. That's my point. Okay. Um, so now keep all that, kind of hold that while within the Christian subculture, there is a lot more emphasis that begins to uh, take place in the 80s um, with this idea of um, our world is going to hell. The next thing is Armageddon, the great worldwide war. And the author that really began to uh, put this kind of in the spotlight of the Christian discussion was a guy by the name of Hal Lindsey. And Hal Lindsey wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth with a sequel, uh, Countdown to Armageddon. And uh, all of a sudden, evangelicals began to be obsessed with eschatology, which is just a big word that means last things. Uh, and what's next? What's going to come? 
And uh, they began in many ways to interpret the entire Bible in light of the end times. Now, there was some of that before the 80s. I remember um, back in the 70s, uh, before Russia fell apart, it was uh, it was thought Russia is the big uh, enemy and they would go to Ezekiel and talk about uh, Gog and Magog and all these other things that uh, was pointing to Russia. Then Russia fell apart. And what we find is that a little bit later, that focus begins to turn to the Middle East, uh, especially since 9-11. But um, it's during this time, what you have is book after book begins to be published. Uh, and all it was usually related to all of these type of topics, the second coming, the rapture, the great tribulation, the Antichrist, uh, and this final world war. Now, universally, before, um, before the 20th century, historically, uh, and I say virtually universal, the church believed in what was called amillennialism. Now, that, that, that is a, a, a mouthful that basically goes back to the book of Revelation and talks about a thousand years. Let me read this out of Revelation chapter 20 for you so you kind of know what I'm referring to here. It says here, and I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Okay, so there's a lot of things in that paragraph. Okay, great tribulation, uh, the deception of Satan. Amillennialism said, this is figurative language. This, this is not a literal thousand years. It takes, takes the idea of the whole book of Revelation, and it uses a ton of imagery, a ton of figures of speech, and um, the church primarily thought this was a text that related um, to the hardships that, of the church go, uh, in the first century under the Roman Empire. However, in the 1700s, there was a guy by the name of John Nelson Darby who began to introduce what is called dispensationalism. Um, most of us remember the Schofield Study Bible, um, and that was that prompted um, uh, the idea of what is called futuristic premillennialism. In other words, this chapter, uh, Revelation 20, is is going to be preceded by the coming of Christ, and um, and then if you keep backing this up. Uh, the coming of Christ is going to be preceded by the rapture, and we're not going to be here for seven years of great tribulation, and Christ is going to come. He's going to rule on the earth for a thousand years. Satan is going to be released from captivity, uh, and then uh, Christ is going to come again again and set up his eternal kingdom. Well, if you know anything about, if you... If you know anything about dispensationalism, it is a complex way of taking the scriptures and trying to make it all fit. But one of the things that happened that really prompted the popularity of this, and I'm going to confess, since I was saved in 1975 and, um, and WCRF was a strong presence in the Cleveland area, this is where I cut my teeth, was on uh, 
uh, WCRF and then later Dallas Seminary, which is highly dispensational. Um, and it's and they build this whole idea, this whole and you, there's complex charts. I mean, very complex charts that is all kind of built upon the fact that finally the nation of Israel it, uh, becomes a modern state in 1948, and it's all these signs that Jesus is going to come again, and his coming is just around the corner, and we all need to be ready, as Larry Norman used to say, uh, sing, I wish we'd all been ready. Uh, he introduced a lot of contemporary Christian music at the time. So anyways, um, all of this, though, began to increase in the late 1700s, and then became more popular toward the end of the 1800s. But prior to the 1700s, um, that's not really the way the church interpreted uh, the book of Revelation. So the book of Revelation became more literal in its interpretation um, fairly recently. Um, but most people don't know the history behind this type of things. Um, what really prompted his popularity and energized it was an, another author by the name of Tim LaHaye. And he just kept producing uh, the Left Behind series. And it's all built upon this, um, it, uh, these themes here of the second coming, rapture, great tribulation, antichrist, and Armageddon. So uh, Tim LaHaye, um, my, here, I'm going to show you my skepticism here. Why did he keep writing? He was making a lot of money. So he produced volume after volume after volume. And a lot of people read those and took those as if they were gospel. And they're fiction. They're fiction uh, books. Um, but it takes a lot of the, these themes and fleshes it out. And so I'm curious, did have any of you read some of the novels left behind? Did you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. Well, you had balance then. So Beth was saying she read a number of the Left Behind series, but she said that she understood that this is fictional writing. But a lot of people didn't. They kind of took a lot of that as literal... And this is what's going to happen. Well, now here we are several decades later, you know, uh, Hal Lindsey actually predicted the second coming of Christ in the late 70s as well. So I want to show you this because this is interesting. So here are the novels that, uh, or books, I should say, that Hal Lindsey wrote. I want you to see the common theme, Late Great Planet Earth, 1980s Countdown to Armageddon, uh, Apocalypse Code. Here's Al, Al Lindsay. Uh, he's got a, a great mustache. Um, uh, there's a new world coming, The Road to the Holocaust, Planet Earth, the final chapter. Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. So his, we talked last week about J, uh, Jack Van Empey. He's, this guy is very similar. This is kind of the hobby horse that he rode. Uh, a contemporary individual that does a lot of this is David Jeremiah. Um, so he, most of his, um, his books are about the second coming of Christ and end times as well. Um, so do you, you have some thoughts there before we move forward, Carl? If now, you ever saw... Go ahead. If you ever saw the movie of um, the Left Behind series, mm -hmm. the guy who they cast for the Antichrist, I thought looked quite a bit, even though I, the guy was white, he mm -hmm. reminded me of Obama. Oh, is that right? Yeah. And I, you know, I think that was probably. You froze. Uh, say that again, Shelly. You froze there I, for about 10 seconds. I think it was probably intentional on their part to get a guy who who looked similar to Obama, even though he wasn't black, to uh -huh. be the Antichrist. But isn't this pre-Obama, though, the, the films? Was it? Yeah. 
the late great planet Earth. It it wasn't the first one. I think it oh, was probably you mean a, the you mean a, a remake. Is that what? Was there a remake? No, no. Let me look it up and see. Huh. What the movie was? Okay. Because I thought I thought those movies were was quite a bit prior to Obama's. You know. I think it was. Yeah, yeah. Or Left Behind. I'm sorry, the Left Behind. Left Behind. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the Left Behind series was turned into some movies as well, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I've never seen it, Shelley. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was because I knew who Obama was at the time I was watching the movie. Oh, okay. 2000, 2002, 2005. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. So that's probably not, I must have seen it in retrospect. Yeah, right. <laughs> Although release dates were 2000 to 2016. So if I was watching a later one, that would have worked. Uh-huh. Gotcha. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting observation. Okay. Let's keep going here. For, so it was kind of like a perfect storm um, also in the 80s because the AIDS epidemic uh, came to the forefront of the uh, world uh, stage. And it was interesting at the time, Jerry Falwell was still producing uh, the Moral Majority Report. And uh, this particular um, issue was from July of 1983. So he begins to again use fear, uh, saying homosexual diseases threaten American families. He also made some pretty bold claims. He said that, uh, that uh, the AIDS epidemic was the wrath of God upon homosexuals. And um, again, drumming up this, um, using certain things as a political boost for the party, okay? Um, but you can see it here, okay? How do you catch AIDS? Well, it's through intimacy. It's not airborne, but they've got masks on. That's right. How does it affect the family? That's right. Well, it's the same with the the um, you know the marriage equality act, and that is how does that affect the family? It doesn't. I mean, the fact that I have a son and a son-in-law has no bearing on anybody. It doesn't affect their life. Yeah. Yeah. How does same-sex marriage affect heterosexual marriage? It doesn't. But you see how fear is, is the constant theme that is being used to, to get people hyped up and to get and to, to control them. So here, this was now another issue that there is no absolutely no connection whatsoever to the AIDS epidemic and the average American family. Unless, unless you have a loved one that had AIDS and you had to care for them or something like that. But I mean, the fact that, that's right, yeah. Well, that's why it was such a big deal when Princess Diana would go into the AIDS community and hug them, hug AIDS patients. Yeah, right, right. But what Mark was just saying, because I know you weren't, you didn't weren't able to hear him, uh, it, he said, you know, it 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 started to cross over into the heterosexual community because of the sharing of needles among drug users and stuff, mm -hmm. and and there were American Christians that began to recognize that it just it wasn't through same-sex you know intimacy it was also potentially a problem because of drug users 
But that's not what's being said here in this, okay? Uh, see, how it, it makes no sense. Why, why do they have masks? This isn't an airborne disease. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So anyways, all of this is kind of like coming together as kind of like a, uh, a perfect storm that kept gathering uh, momentum. So enter Pat Robertson. So when the second term of Ronald Reagan was coming to an end, the Republican Party began to wonder who's going to carry the ball forward. And so uh, Pat Robertson in 1987 happened to say, God told him to run for president, okay? So he's trying to position himself uh, to, to be elected, right? Uh, carrying the, the momentum of Ronald Reagan. He did have politics. Uh, I never knew this before that he was the son of US Senator A. Willis Robertson. I didn't know that. His primary emphasis though was in Christian ministry. Actually for over 50 years, he was um, the founder of the Christian Broadcasting Network he helped found Regent University, and he was the host of the 700 Club on TV for years and years and years. So here, here's Pat Robertson. Uh, he is still alive, and um, he looks even worse than that right now. But um, you can see his age. I, I'm not sure when this photograph was taken. But he began to promise that he was not only going to restore America's greatness through military strength, but he's going to restore moral strength. The fascinating thing is evangelicals didn't get behind him, though. And there was a kind of a certain subculture that liked the 700 Club that was really behind him. But although he was a Southern Baptist, he had a lot of charismatic leanings to him. And I think that kind of, and let's face it, if you listen to him talk, he, he had a lot of conspiracy type things that he would interject. And I think if you couple that with the Jimmy uh, uh, Swaggart and Jim Baker scandals and all that type of thing, um, the evangelicals actually put their support behind uh the elder Bush, George H.W. Bush, uh, who also took advantage of that religious connection with the evangelicals. Um, he, um, he was an individual that, um, I didn't get a picture, but you know who uh, uh, George H.W. Bush is. Anyways, he, um, he wins the presidency. And during the second year of his presidency, Iraq invades Kuwait. Now what we're going to see is, oh, the Middle East is in a turmoil. But it, do you remember um, Schwarzkopf and all these guys during that time, they projected strength and it really was shock and awe the way they won that war. Um, the U.S. forged this international coalition and uh, their strength was on display. And that helped fortify, again, the importance of a strong military. But I think what subtly started to happen is now the focus of all this eschatology from Hal Lindsey began to turn toward the Middle East rather than Russia, okay? And um, so again, you still have this literal interpretation of revelation that conservative Protestants are once again, still fearing kind of the end of the world scenario. But what they're coupling with this is the idea that an antichrist is going to have a one world government, okay? Now, again, you can take passages of scripture if you wanna take them out of the context and create these scenarios. But what really prompts this type of thing is in 1991, Robertson published The New World Order. That was a book that he wrote. 
And he argued that Pre President Bush at the time was duped into thinking that the threat of communism was over, but it really wasn't over. And that was the threat of the new world order that was still about to take over uh, uh, our country. So what happened is he began again, conspiracy theory, Robertson, by accusing Bush of launching the Iraq war as a plot to, um, to cede American sovereignty to the United Nations, okay? That never, that didn't prove to be anything, but it was something that was thrown out there. So again, fear, end time scenarios, all that type of thing kept pushing this in front of the evangelical world. And then along comes the radio heads. Uh, conservatives um, um, found a new voice on, on talk radio. And there was a lot of different talk radio uh, hosts and there still are if you listen to AM radio. But the one that really rose to the top was Rush Limbaugh. So after, after Bush, um, along comes Clinton. And uh, he was a liberal, and of course he had his own issues, but Rush Limbaugh tore into him every day on the radio and tore into Hillary as well. He made a fortune basically by using the Clintons. And, but if you ever listen to Rush Limbaugh, he was very sexist. He was very misogynistic in his comments. Um, toward the end of his life, before he passed away, here he is, he passed away in 2021. He was given the Congressional Medal of Honor by uh, Donald Trump. And um, again, all of this is wedding this idea of Republican and Christianity. And, um, and out of this came this framing of politics and foreign policies with the same outlook, and that is masculine power, masculine power. Out of that rises Fox News, and Fox News starts its own network. Again, it too dips into the nostalgia of the past a little bit, where white men are strong, and evangelicals that believe that women were to submit to men uh, is this idea of pushing back on white feminists and uh, liberals were demonized, that type of thing. So all of these things are coming together. And, and what's going to happen is after this, I want you to see where we're at because we live our lives. And, you know, occasionally I was in the car and I turn on Rush Limbaugh and could listen for about 10 minutes before his bombastic style turned me off enough to say, I'm going to listen to something else. But there would be people that would say, you know, um, excellent in broadcasting network. If you want to learn something, you got to listen to Rush, da, 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 and all that type of thing. Well, here's what, where it's led. All these influences that we've talked about the last two Wednesday nights leads to this. I want you to watch this video. And I want you to tell me what you think of it. It's only about five minutes long. So this was um, a prayer declaration that was done on July the 3rd down in Atlanta. And uh, these leaders, I want you to notice, they wrote this declaration. It is on YouTube that you can watch, um, but I just want you to take it in and I, then let's see how, how you think after we watch it. Let's take a look. All right, go ahead. All right, Dutch, lead us. So we'll read it together, okay? As a patriot of faith, I attest my allegiance first and foremost to the kingdom of God and the great commission. Secondly, I agree to be a watchman over our nation concerning its people and their rights for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Whereas we, the church, are God's governing 
given legal power from heaven and now exercise our authority, whereas we are God's ambassadors and spokespeople over the earth, whereas through the power of God, we are the world influencers, whereas because of our covenant with God, we are equipped and delegated by him to destroy every attempted advance of the enemy. We make our declarations. We decree that America's executive branch of government will honor God and defend the Constitution. We decree that our legislative branch, Congress, will write only laws that are righteous and constitutional. We decree that our judicial system will issue rulings that are biblical and constitutional. We declare that we stand against wokeness, the occult, and every evil attempt against our nation. We declare and we now take back our God-given freedoms according to our Constitution. We declare that we take back influence at the local level in our communities. We decree that we take back and permanently control positions of influence and leadership in each of the seven mountains. We decree that the blood of Jesus covers and protects our nation. It protects and separates us from God. We declare that our nation is energy dependent. We declare that America is strong spiritually, financially, militarily, and technologically. We decree that evil carries no power, authority, or rights in our land or over our people. We decree that we will operate in unity, going beyond denominational lines in order to accomplish the purposes of God for our nation. And we decree that America shall be saved. We know, we know this, here we go. We know this country was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. We know the truth, therefore we stand for truth and will never be deceived. We will never stop fighting. We will never, ever, ever give up or give in. We will take our country back. We will honor the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. America shall be saved. Okay, what are your impressions? So Esty says it's like Christian Sharia law. Okay. Christians. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and then there was one, there was one, one of the first statements was like, I don't think so. It said something about God. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so Beth was saying that one of the statements is God gave us that power. So we have the right to do certain things. Okay. Yeah. What scares me about that is the idea that Christians can superimpose their will on the rest of the nation. Now, they keep referring to the Constitution. But in our Constitution, this is supposed to be a country where you, you can 
you can be of a different religion and you will not be persecuted for it. So freedom of religion is, a, is an important part of the, the country. So it, it seems to me that when you take this idea of, uh, of Christianity to the point where we are the chosen people, therefore we have the rights to determine all the laws, we have the rights to determine who's in and who's out. We have the rights to uh, determine who can be discriminated against. Uh, friends, that to me is blasphemy. We don't have those rights. I mean, what we do have is the opportunity to, to engage in a conversation of democracy to, to say, we feel this will will be a better direction for our country, but you know, when you when you go to this this degree, I mean, it seems to me that you've lost all concept of what Christianity is supposed to be. And here's I'll give you the, this last slide. So I've led you up to this point talking about Christian nationalism. So what is it? Well, it, I think Christian nationalism is this belief that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Christ can be advanced by the dominance of a particular political party or nation state that claims to be the political or national embodiment of the will of Christ in opposition to all other political and national rivals. So Christian nationalism uh, feels that, hey, we have the right to dictate how our country is to be run, and we will not take any consideration of those who disagree with us or engage in conversation, uh, uh, you know, that type of thing. Now, I just personally think that's very dangerous. And, um, and it seems as though a lot of that has been pushed upon us, not only over the last few years, but I think its roots go all the way back to these things that we were talking about, using fear, all those type of things. What, what do you guys think about that um, video? Well, one thing I noticed in there was they were all good old white boys. Mm -hmm. And they said, we declare we something about not a, not being woke yeah and right. you know so they are excluding a lot of people there they sure are yeah they don't have a voice um it's only white i don't have a voice christian <laughs> it's only white christians that have a voice and type of thing. the way they looked on the stage they were only white christian males too exactly right that's exactly right. Yeah. So what Esty said is they were vowing to control all the branches of government too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, we have a lot to pray about, uh, especially as we head toward the next election. Uh, I think um, I think we have lost our way as a church of being a light on a hill uh, to show that we love people, we serve people, doesn't matter who they are, where they come from, what their ethnicity is, what their where they are on the economic ladder of life, all that type of thing has just seemed to be to me anyways to be lost and. Um, and I think that it takes Christians to, to push back on this, even though it might be a beneficial system for certain people. Um, this country, if, if it's really true, that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is to be made available to all people, well, then you can't have this type of person or group in control. You know, um, so yeah, and Mark says that what about the separation of church and state? Yeah. 
right. Yeah, right. Yeah, so what Mark was saying is, what about the separation of church and state? And what Beth was just saying, it sounded almost as a cult type thing. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. I, anyway, I, I, would, I, would, I would agree with all that. And, you know, the church and state. And, and, and the people, these, this, these folks are, you know, pretty far off, off base. And, and yet, I, I do think that the, the way that one of the reasons this is working for them in some ways is because they have a passion. You know, they, they have, they have a, they're unified in some sense. Mm-hmm. And they have a passion and they have a message. And, and, I, and I think that's something that, you know, that on the other, on, I don't want to say the other side, but in terms of the rest of the country, they, they don't have that. They're very disjointed, very, yeah. you know what I'm saying? So I, I think that's one of the reasons why this is working for them. And, and in some ways you have to give them credit for the fact that they're able to, to achieve that and to have that passion, to have that motivation and to, you know, as off base as, as a lot of it is in terms of church versus state being, you know, bigoted. bigoted, whatever else you want to call it. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why they're successful and why they're able to, it's, it's sort of this, this camaraderie is not the right word, but sense of community that people get by being part of that. Is, I think it's in part why they tend to overlook the shortcomings of the leaders and in, in many other ways, I won't get into that, but yeah. Uh, so I do, I do think that's one of the reasons why why it's working for them and and why it's a it's a formidable issue because of the fact that I mean I think they're going to continue to have that sense of community and people want that sense of community and something to fight for if you want to call it that and and, a lot, and it comes back to a lot of of what you've talked about before in terms of the nostalgia of the good old times you know and wanting to be part of a community that is supporting that and goes back to that period and at least in their you know and, you know in their in their minds and I. So I, I, I think this is complicated I mean, in terms of what's happening today. But. Very complicated, but my whole purpose of this study was in, in, in some of the things that, that I've been reading, I go, I've never seen that. I've never seen that. I didn't connect that. I didn't connect that. And it, you know, it, it, it's when, when you see something, you can't unsee it. You know what I'm saying? And, and you, be, and I think it helps you then to be more discerning and, and um, you're exactly right. We've been overpowered by passion and that, and, you know, our lackadaisical approach to things has caught up to us in some ways. Right. Yeah. Right. Where is those? I mean, they're Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, what Esty said, and we'll kind of close up with this. Her thought is, she said they kept saying that our nation was built on Judeo-Christian values, and yet at the same time, there is a there's a evil underbelly to the beginning of our nation in terms of how Native Americans and Blacks were treated. Um, and yet that's ignored, you know, a lot of times. So it, you know, it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, what he was just saying is that it's kind of interesting how um, they they referred back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the God they serve. And it's almost like a power play in the sense that, well, how do you argue with that? Because as Christians, we look back to those covenants that God made with those individuals that led us to Christ, that type of thing. So, but you know, well, I think, I think, you know a lot of what they're saying, and, and if you take all that apart, there's a lot of truth to what is in those slides too. If you know what I'm saying, as a Christian, but there's also a lot of a lot of error. I mean, if you know, and so I mean, that's what that's why it gets. I think the following it does because there is a lot that's consistent with 
the Bible and, and, and aspects of Christianity, even though in many other ways, it, it's very distorted in terms of what it's trying to, you know, it's what it's trying to say and what it's trying to, to, uh, to push. So I, I don't know. It's... Yep. Well, I think we've had enough for tonight. We've looked at a lot of stuff and um, believe me, we're starting to wind and turn the corner here, uh, wind down and turn the corner a little bit. But um, we'll start a new study, obviously, uh, with the beginning of the new ministry year in September. So I've got to pick up the pace a little bit. But, um, but I hope you found this helpful and insightful. And, and um, you know, we'll begin to turn the corner a little bit next week and then um, wind it down in the month of August. So um, why don't we close at this point? And um, we'll, thanks for being on with us tonight. And we'll see you soon, okay? Thanks, Thanks, Larry. Larry. Right, you're welcome. Have a good Bye. Bye-bye.